Hello, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where and when you are listening to us. Welcome again to Burley Fisher's Isolation Station. I am your host, Dan Fuller, and I am joined for the first time in a little while, actually, by my good friend, So Mayer. So, how are you doing? I am fully on board with the not knowing where and when, because <laughs> I, I am still working from home and time has no meaning. Uh, I exist entirely digitally. Um, so at one point we were colleagues at a bricks and mortar bookshop called Burley Fisher, which I believe in the way I believe in like Oz and Wonderland. <laughs> like one day I will go through a wardrobe and find myself back there. And not that I'm going back in the closet, just uh, particularly relevant phrase uh, for today's podcast um, yeah. because we're talking to uh, Juliet Jacks, author of Variations, mm -hmm. which is about among other things coming out of of literal closets um because there's so much amazing clothes um <laughs> in the book um so yeah i um understand it's going like great guns irl you're yeah um you've become a secondhand antiquarian book dealer since we last spoke how are your elbow patches they're okay they're okay I, i've kind of been rubbing the tweeds purposefully because they they were it was kind of in too good nick um and i, I think the elbow patches in a necessity uh if i'm to kind of go into that game is is it legal to smoke a pipe in a bookstore well i mean i think it's a questionable legality but morally i think it's imperative <laughs> The game's afoot. Um, yeah. So yeah, what 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 have been your top finds? Because I haven't had a chance to come in. Uh, I was going to say fundle, but um, <laughs> fundle uh, it's been so it's been so long <laughs> since I've been anywhere real. <laughs> what have you What have you been fundling in the basement recently, Dan? I have been very respectfully touching. <laughs> Consensual quite, engagement with the book, certainly. With the book. We've got some lovely editions, actually. After kind of, I guess, a couple of years of just tat, no offence, no one's brought any of them coming in the shop. We've got some really nice old books. We've got a first edition Mark Twain, Hidden Ooh. Away. Uh, we've got some genealogy books from the 1700s. Some oh, wow. Books of, uncertain provenance but maybe from venice so it's all it's all very exciting i actually yeah starting to feel like a kind of actual antiquarian rather than just a second-hand flogger i will not pick up on the word flogger but just to say that i think <laughs> that that actual antiquarian is your next podcast and i did see i think a picture of you on insta looking very lovely with one of those enormous genealogy oh, yeah. books yeah. um god posh people like to show off I about know. themselves <laughs> <laughs> so anyone looking to do like a cut up as part of their like art practice like literally <laughs> wants to cut up the british aristocracy burley fisher um have your back and yeah it's you know i do sort of into and i think you know i feel like this is an experience that maybe some podcast listeners also have if you're not in london or you're like me you're still shielding like getting to see bits of what's happening on insta mm. and twitter hearing about it on the podcast, YouTube, it's like, it's actually really cool. Like this week, um, I had the actually unbelievable, I'm still not sure it happened. I'm very glad there's evidence. Experience of doing an online conversation with the one and only Carmen Maria Machado, um, just because Burley Fisher is being even gayer than usual during Prime <laughs> like, We are just 
upping our queer we didn't even know that was possible um as part of like this week we've done with the amazing serpent's tail which involved like meringues and puppies and i mean the puppies were they did not supply puppies just, <laughs> the puppies just showed up and tote bags and like writing about great books so yeah being able to like do this online conversation with Carmen we had like 300 people from all over the world in the wow. audience it's up on YouTube you can go and check it out with like great comments there was like a lot of banter in the in the chat so yeah I think this year has been like so fucking hard but some some stuff's come out of it that I think yeah. you should keep up like definitely keeping up this in engagement of like bigger audiences and audiences who can't necessarily get to the bookstore so yeah podcast producing has really opened us up opened stuff up for us i think we're going to be going hybrid i think even for like in-person events i think i'll be behind a camera or with a recording or something because I, I think you're right i think it's so important to have as much outreach as humanly possible because it's just lovely that people wherever or indeed whenever they are can yeah listening and, and kind of be part of that community i guess and you know reading variations which mm -hmm. um is a book that do, it does many things as you'll hear me and juliet talking about but one of the things it does one of the things we talk about one of the things carmen talks about actually as well is the importance of countercultural archives because like believe me the dominant culture keeps its archives like <laughs> and it decides what goes in there and if you want to fuck with that you've got to be a diy archivist um yeah. i want to shout out to kirsty fife on twitter for that phrase diy archivist and and all the work they do around that but like you know so looking back over the last year of Bernie Fisher, it's like, my God, we do so much stuff. And that was all happening. And that was great. Mm. And now people can access it anytime. They can look back at it. All these amazing authors who've like shared so much with us so generously. That isn't just for like the 50 people we could cram in or like the, you know, people who saw a quote from it on Insta. It's like an amazing, amazing archive and resource that we made ourselves um in our community and you know uh Juliet talks in the book about using like the Bishopsgate um LGBTQ archives which is like at the Bishopsgate Institute a workers education institute that is actually not very far from us just in Liverpool Street so you know it's like quite a tingly sensation to think actually like god damn what we're doing is we're building an archive and yeah when we when we come back to like big scale live events in october fingers crossed touchwood spin around three times spit in the evil eye like argh! um what i've been working on behind the scenes is like bf day 21 festival woo! and i woo! i know it's been announced we're going to be announcing headliners next week mm -hmm. so make sure you're in our newsletter make sure you're like following us online to get in on those tickets they will be limited we will be having safe social distance events and we are also going to record them and put them on the podcast so that mm you know they they go out there and like what's what's said has a memory but yeah mm. julia is like hopefully going to be one of our speakers at that event as well so there'll be a chance to catch her in conversation in like a different framework um that's an exclusive reveal yeah. <laughs> but you can also catch juliet this weekend at the influx showcase in tottenham mm -hmm. um along with some of our other um influx faves um so if you are out and about this weekend and um ready for some live lit do grab the details from the influx twitter feed uh i think it's going to be massive so 
yeah, but if you are not out and about, you're not in London, you get to hear Juliet um, on audio. And I'm saying Juliet, 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 um, like everyone knows who she is because she, in Bernie Fisher's mind, she's like the most famous person. Yeah. That is our customer. <laughs> like, oh my God. Um, she's like full on. We love Julia and are always mm. so excited and can't believe when she says yes to doing stuff with us because mm. we're super massive fans, super huge nerds as well. So, some of you uh, will know Juliet from her writing for The Guardian, which was a landmark column on gender reassignment um, entitled Transgender Journey before The Guardian became transphobic. That's not part of the title. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of like the idea that when that column was like collected and revised into her beautiful memoir, Trans and Memoir, like the subtitle or the subtweet of that was because I don't want it to be in The Guardian anymore because it's transphobic. <laughs> so that was published by Verso in 2015. Um, and some of our modernist lit fans will also know Juliet as the author of Raina Heppenstall, a critical study published by the Amazing Dorky Archive in 2007. Some of our um, local cinephiles will um, may have heard Juliet introducing films or um, had chats with her at Close Up. Um, she's just like a cultural powerhouse. She also hosts um, Sweet 212, um, a radio show and podcast. Um, and you may have tuned into that, or you might have read her writing in London Review of Books, Granta, Sight and Sound, Freeze, Art Review, New York Times, or about Norwich Football Club. Um, yeah. We are a broad church. Um, uh, or you may have read her writing about clothes in the book that Sheila Hetty edited. Um, so we cover all of that in our conversation. Um, Dan, how are you feeling about reading variations? I'm really excited. Um, I think Sam's going to drop me a proof off sometime in the next couple of days. It, it, uh, having listened to the conversation, I just can't wait to read it because it strikes the perfect balance of like kind of nerdy attention to detail with kind of this kind of very deep historical understanding of things and a very kind of inquiring rightly mind. I, I kind of had a, a, a brief flip through of some of the uh, indie fiction versions that we sent out yesterday. Um, but yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait to get lost in it. Yeah, so variations as part of our indie fiction subscription program if you're a listener and you've received your copy with a beautiful postcard and an interview with um influx press uh please enjoy it if you're like what is this indie fiction subscription of which you of which you speak um head on over to our website click on the button that says subscriptions and join in you can get start with one month you can go all in for 12 months we have some amazing titles lined up uh, for the rest of the year, um, you can also order variations uh, from our website um, to read. I was going to try and say something clever, but just like, just read it. It's amazing. <laughs> read it. As you'll, as you'll get from this podcast, it's also really funny and really sexy and just like, you know, there are those books that you just want to hang out with. Yeah. yeah, yeah this, is, sure. this is that book. So um, shall we hear from Juliet? Yeah. Welcome to Bernie Fisher's Isolation Station. We are back with uh, another one of our 
exciting indie fiction subscription. Writers, a tongue twister that sums up the books we are most excited about every month coming from the small presses who are really doing it and this month we couldn't be happier than to be celebrating Influx uh, who have probably been wondering why we've been waiting so long to have them on the show and on our subscription and it is because this month's book uh, Juliet Jake's Variations uh, our most anticipated book of 2021 um, we couldn't be happier to have Juliet on the show welcome hi hi um, I know uh, we've got you on the break uh, half time in Ukraine, North Macedonia. So we're gonna we're gonna go at clip. Um, congratulations on variations. We are actually recording on publication day, which is pretty special. How are you feeling about the book coming into the world? Well, I'm very happy and excited and proud. I'm relieved and I'm I'm just kind of glad. I first had the idea for this book in I think about 2003, not long after I graduated from my undergraduate degree, it grew out of a short story I wrote when I was 20 about a young cross-dresser who wants to make themselves a work of art, having found a quote along those lines in Nietzsche, and decides to dress up as the early 20th century Russian film actress Alan Asimova, who you might know from the very queer version of Oscar Wilde's Salome that she made reputedly with an entirely queer cast in the um, early 1920s, uh, and then takes this garb to uh, a fairly run-of-the-mill drag bar in Brighton in, in the early 21st century. And, you know, I showed this to friends of mine who were writers and they really liked it, and it made me realise that as trans characters came into my writing more and more, that Firstly, that I was trans, and that secondly, I didn't really have any trans literature that spoke to me. I didn't have anything at the time by trans or non-binary writers. I hadn't discovered the great wave of 1990s American writers yet, but I think we'll probably get onto them in a bit. Um, but even at the time, I thought, well, I would love to write a volume of short stories that in some ways explores and to an extent celebrates and showcases the diversity of the trans and non-binary community and that idea was in my head for a long time I got sidetracked by journalism I ended up writing the Guardian series on my um, what would have been called gender reassignment process at the time so 2009 to 12 and then the book Trans and Memoir that came out of that documenting that process but also the experience of writing about it in mainstream media and what that was like uh, and at that point when that book was published 2015 that was when I came back to variations I got funding to do this as a um, creative and critical writing PhD at the University of Sussex supervised by uh, I think a mutual friend of ours so uh, Sam Solomon's a wonderful um, queer American poet and writer at Sussex as well as a life writing academic called Margareta Jolly and so I did the book as a PhD, so the bulk of it was written between 2015 and 2019, with a couple of stories written in 2020. Um, so as you can see, it's been nearly a 20-year a process from conception to publication. Um, so really, my main feeling is just, just feeling kind of exhausted but ecstatic that it's, it's here and it's out. I love that, exhausted but ecstatic. Um, and... 
Look, I want to focus on the ecstasy, but also talk about the exhausting process that goes behind that. Because when you say nearly 20 years, people might think, you know, holy forks, that is a long time to write a book. But this book has so much research and thought behind it. Each story could be a novel in itself in terms of the historical research. So the, the book moves over 150 years um, of British history and British and global history, history uh, of queer and trans cultures as well. And each story is in a different form, often referencing non-fiction forms from reports to conference papers to blogs. So there's a lot of huge amount of formal work and formal development um, to these stories, obviously in some cases drawing on your experience uh, as a journalist and nonfiction writer, but then also each story centers on particular developments in trans and queer culture and particularly legal, political, sociological, psychological, medical culture. So um, I'm a keen lover of uh, getting my fingers into the archives and querying them, messing around with archival sources. Um, and also the way that you work with just the huge span of queer culture, as you mentioned, you know, this partially started with Alan Nazimova's um, fabulous Salome, which should be more widely seen. And the book is full of like absolutely pitch perfect references that are gonna intrigue many readers who don't know them, delight readers who do know them, to follow up and build this like library or cultural centre of queer and trans culture. So I'm I'm going to ask you about your process, which is a word I cannot say, not in an American accent, but seriously, those two elements of getting your hands into this, sometimes, you know, that difficult process of reading about queer and trans lives from the position of those who criminalise them, who medicalise them, you know, the reporting is often coming from outside, and then really getting into like the wave of different cultural forms and moments that are coming from queer and trans artists themselves. Yes, right. Well, there's there's an awful lot there for me to engage with. Uh, Do you want I mean, a shorter question? I'll 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 talk about the archive, shall I? And I yes. can talk about my my process with regards to. I think maybe the first story might be the most interesting one to talk about here, which is called A Night of the Theatre. It's set in eighteen forty six, and uh, what happens in the the story. Um, first to note on the presentation of the stories themselves, including this one, all of the stories are presented as recovered archive documents, as if there is yeah. someone compiling these variations um, from a variety of different archival stories in themselves. And so um, A Night at the Theatre is told it's a kind of recovered secret diary, and I use that form because the central character could not possibly, in, uh, in the 1840s, have written about being kind of queer, being proto-trans, being in love with a man and having a secret relationship with a man, uh, a man who also cross-dresses and cross-dressing themselves. Um, you know, even though there were no specific laws against cross-dressing or any other sort of gender-variant behaviour at the time, it almost certainly would have secured imprisonment as well as social humiliation, quite a lot of physical pain, etc. Um but the archival process is really interesting, and the story actually starts with an excerpt from a Times newspaper court report from 1846 um, about someone called John Travers, who is discovered cross-dressing in London. And this is a real report. Um, 
my starting point for this was I tried to write a non-fiction history of trans people in the early 2010s, and I did a chapter on the Victorian period. I had a book uh, by a gay historian called H.G. Uh, Cox called Nameless Offences, which had a table of um, male-to-female cross-dressers who were arrested in London, uh, and the authorities suspected that they were uh, sodomites, basically, um, and put them on trial, uh, suspected of... of sodomy suspected of um of being queer basically but they didn't have the legal infrastructure to charge them for that at this point they're often charged with soliciting or breach of the peace or or something like that and the way this usually played out was that the cross-dresser in court was often presented in women's clothing maybe the day after they'd been arrested uh so there'd be some public humiliation there but they would often say that they'd just done this for a joke or a bet or a lark um, they won't do it again, they're very sorry. They, sorry, they were just being young and silly. And they would usually get a slap on the wrist and a fine and dishonourable discharge. Um, but I went into a lot of digital archives. Uh, obviously, lots of newspapers over the last 20 years have been digitised, and so you can search very precisely by term. And I realised quite quickly, I, I looked up some of these cases that Cox gave in, in Nameless Offences, and found that the phrase dressed in female attire kept coming up. And I instinctively guessed that that phrase obviously wouldn't be used for a cis woman. Um, so I, I just put the phrase female attire into the Time search engine for the whole of the 19th century. And of course got back quite a lot of cases that Cox didn't find. And kept finding the same sorts of tropes. That firstly people kept going to the same places. So you could def- you could deduce from that that maybe... They read about these in the newspapers and thought, okay, maybe I can meet other trans and queer people here um, and maybe I can risk it. And I sort of got this impression, I mean, Cox basically took the authorities' suspicions at face value. Uh, whereas I thought, no, I think it's far more likely that these people had some innate drive to cross-dress and this was the only way they could express it or this is the only way that history has given it down to us. Um, so could write the short story using really some of my own experience of furtively and secretly cross-dressing and being worried about getting caught, you know, even 150 years later, uh, but bring that to bear on these court cases. So in the first story... Um, basically write this this secret diary of this this cross-dresser um, and how it feels to cross-dress and how desperate this person is to just go out dressed as a woman for one night um, and then a kind of court case that springs from there uh, written in the style of course of these early Victorian reports so so that's that's one of the ways in which the archive comes to bear on the stories I mean obviously there are similar processes for a lot of the stories especially the stories set before the second world war um but that i think was maybe the most interesting one and in the second story um which is titled a woman of no importance with a forward slash between wa and man in the title um you actually tell a story of one of these gatherings you show the process by which rumors um news reports were discussed uh in communities led people to make very dangerous plans um and one of the things that i 
I loved about it and loved about the all the stories in the book was the attention to the detail of the clothing, as you say, the passion, the desire, the erotics, the freedom of expression, and the real specificities of what that meant. You know, female attire, quote unquote, is obviously an extremely varied um, range of items over the course of history as women's liberation has changed how, how women dress as as fashion quote-unquote and marketing and so on and the depth of research into into women's clothing and how it's presented and experienced is just uh one of the real pleasures of many of these stories um not that all of the stories are about um people who wear women's clothing or trans women but of clothing in general and that real relationship to um its specificities um and in a woman of no importance you sort of you describe a moment um of witnessing this of seeing what these clothes are like when they're worn and when they're moved, uh, when they're moving. I wondered if you might say something about that or maybe even read a bit. I think I think that is a good good place to read a bit. Yeah, so a lot of A Woman of No Importance, the central character is called Arthur or Anthea Parr, who was a writer in their early 20s, who's moved from Manchester to London to firstly try and launch a writing career and is desperate to get to know Oscar Wilde and has become part of this circle around the Yellow Book, uh, which is a decadent um, 1890s publication that was actually uh, Wilde didn't particularly like, um, but but nonetheless becomes part of this social circle around Oscar Wilde at, the, at a time that the Oscar Wilde trial is happening. And so wants to be a writer and wants to write about sort of proto-trans and queer subjects, but also wants to organise a drag board along the lines of the real one that was busted in... Uh, Hume in Manchester in 1880 and of which uh, Parr has heard about while living in Manchester and indeed tracked down one or two of the participants of. Um, So I'm going to just read an extract. Um, The premises of the the story, again, this, this text has been found in an archive and the anonymous author has, 20 years after the events described, written a report really to make sure that Arthur stroke Anthea Parr doesn't get lost to history. Um, But there's a very pivotal event in the story that I'm going to read about now. So, one of the group had a family friend who ran a hotel in Aldgate. They would not disclose their real purpose, they agreed, but tell the proprietor they were holding a party after a wedding. As it transpired, this contained a glint of truth. Otherwise, Parr applied all his learning from the temperance hall. Entry would be allowed only by password, using the same one, sister, and the pianist would be a man of poor eyesight. Unlike his predecessors in Manchester, Parr ensured that every window was covered and that they had an obvious escape plan to be explained to everyone who gave the password. They had a code word, Cromwell, for a raid. If it were yelled, they would leave via the fire exit, race down the spiral staircase and head east. Parr had wanted to make illustrated invites, but Aubrey Beardsley was too busy and worried about making himself ill. Beardsley would at least attend, though, and might incorporate certain scenes into future works if he felt so inspired. Having listened to all this, I had to admit my curiosity. The Yellow Book organised a dinner in Bloomsbury, doubtless to give themselves an alibi if Parr and his cohort ended up on trial. I chose to go to the ball, despite hearing via a friend that Taylor had been cross-examined in court that morning about having a woman's dress, wig and stockings in his room, 
his presence at Fitzroy Street and his lack of occupation, but mostly about his interest in young men. I had no desire to wear female attire, then or any other time, but I wanted to see how close Parr's reality came to his fantasy. The Cumberland Hotel could never live up to the distant, starlit plains of Parr's story, and in truth, nor could most of the attendees. There were about 25, an impressive number, given the understandable reticent of Parr's invitees, although their costumes proved a huge letdown. I know mine did, the cheapest suit in my possession, chosen more because it was the most amenable to a hasty exit than for any stylistic reason. There were just a handful of people in female attire, with the ladies outnumbered by more than two to one, and potential suitors further disappointed as two of the ladies danced only with each other. Most were not convincing, either because they were too tall or too broad, or dressed in a fashion fifty years past, in corsets that did little to hide their masculine girth or in one case, a sporting lipstick and rouge around a thick brown beard and moustache, which, she said, my wife will not let me shave. A couple, however, may have kept up their deception for long enough for some genuine larks. Certainly, I was momentarily taken in. A few more whiskies, and who knows where an honest gentleman might have been led. Pa, of course, spared no expense in making himself a work of art, and was never in danger of being upstaged. He had purchased a new dress with even higher sleeves and even lower neck, adorned with roses, worn with silk gloves and stockings. Where he found it, let alone how he paid for it, remains a mystery. Anthea was the last attendee to enter, to whistles, applause and Wagner's bridal chorus. One gentleman, unfamiliar to me, threw a bouquet at her feet and took her hand. After much reverie, the music stopped. The guests began to clap and cheer, and a man in a suit walked onto the floor to tell everyone that we were gathered here tonight to celebrate the holy matrimony between Miss Anthea Parr and... Cromwell! One attendee must have been an informer, and may have spent the night noting the names and, adri- names and faces of his fellow guests. It may even have been someone associated with the Yellow Book, although I hope not. Later... I learned that the Manchester revellers had borrowed Sister from previous balls, which had allowed the police to guess the password and gain access to the Temperance Hall, and made it even more reckless for Parr to use it, but maybe nobody had told him so. In any case, I had sensibly, if not courageously, spent much of my evening by the fire escape. I hurried down the stairs, not looking back as I ran all the way to the London hospital. I saw Beardsley struggling after me, I sometimes wonder how many years those few seconds took off his life, but he did escape that night, down Layman Street, and then to who knows where, but as the picture of Dorian Gray had led us to expect, the police did not follow us into the depths of Whitechapel. Pa, in her corset and long silk train, was not so nimble, nor so lucky. Wow. I'm very tempted to say, just keep going. (laughs) <laughs> that's a, a, a it's something that happens I think particularly in the early stories is that that's both a cliffhanger and we have a really sickening sense as you say of the pattern um, of how trans people were treated by the law um, by the media um, some of which continues to the present day uh, but of what's going to happen but the book um, is uh, neither shies away from exploring those patterns, nor is a, a kind of operatic 
trauma. Um, I don't know what the word is there, but it, it doesn't, the stories that it tells are very much stories of people living their lives. Um, we're full of debate. Many of the stories focus on debates within s small groups um, of people who may be described as like-minded, but there's such variety of opinion and presentation and ideas between them. I may be most pointed um, in crossing, but um, many of the stories are about um, a discursive um, and identify different moments where things are really definitions, identities are really up for grabs. And I wanted to sort of talk about that a bit, um, was whether that was a conscious decision, kind of presenting the nuances of those arguments in, in conversation, in what happens in the stories, um, sort of deciding to wade into some of those debates, which, which change, but also echo throughout the century and a half. Mm, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. I mean, you mentioned Crossing there, which is set in the late 2000s, and it's set in a autonomous queer collective in Brighton. And this is kind of at a time when the mainstream media is doing quite a lot of damage to trans people in particular, uh, but a number of uh, quite big legal victories have been won, the Gender Recognition Act uh, in particular, but a number of others as well. Um, and so there is this kind of debate within the trans activist community, which is about whether it's better to set up our own spaces and have nothing to do with sort of straight society in particular with, with its institutions, or whether it's better to try and work within things like mainstream media and politics or try to change it. And the last two stories sort of show different sides of that coin. So that was a conscious decision. And Crossing is presented as an oral history documents um, this queer collective kind of blowing up uh, in Brighton um, under the weight of its own unexamined prejudices, particularly sort of racist prejudices that the white characters don't really question or explore properly. Um, but it's presented discursively... Um, I think partly to give readers some sense, I mean, you know, a liberal approach to this would say, well, it can let readers make their own minds up. And, you know, I don't really like liberal approaches to anything. Um, and it's more to try and make the reader think about where they're positioning themselves, which is a slightly different reaction um, to the text. Um, and, you know, crossing ends on, on quite a pessimistic note, I think. Um, and then the next story, uh, which is called Tipping Point, uh, obviously that title references the famous Time magazine cover with Laverne Cox in the US talking about this transgender tipping point when apparently trans visibility and civil rights had reached a point where they could no longer be rolled back. Um, which, of course, lots of people in America and elsewhere took as a challenge, basically. Um and in Tipping Point, this blogger, he's already aware, he's a trans man in Belfast, um, who is, you know, maybe in their sort of mid to late 30s, um, is quite frustrated with, with a lot of things in life, and is keeping this, this sort of blog sort of documenting how they feel like a sort of outsider in Belfast and in the sort of online trans community, and writes this response to the Tipping Point article that 
that goes, if not viral, then at least makes a kind of splash in online trans circles uh, enough for him to be invited into um, quite kind of liberal NGO type activism, uh, just mostly based in London. And so it's partly um, Ed, the central character, trying to deal with just the stupidity of a lot of debate and the circularity of it and the rapidity of it and the way that rapidity doesn't really allow for sort of sustained thought for changing the terms of of debate Um, and basically this intersection of kind of very bad faith uh, right-wing uses of of debate that we've seen really grow in the last 10 years or so uh, and this sort of clueless liberal response to it which is just kind of like well they're entitled to their opinion without really thinking about who is setting the terms of discussion or why um and ed sort of tries to engage with this and eventually realizes it's pointless and decides to pursue other forms of of kind of localist action within within the belfast trans community so actually kind of turns back towards a certain type of um trans focused um work and trying to do this in the context of austerity as well um so so those are the two stories that i think deal the most explicitly with this sort of discursive approach that you're talking about and i think it's quite telling that they're that they're the two stories set in the 21st century i think that sort of tells you quite a lot about where um the kind of discourse around trans issues is i mean um the most interesting thing to say about this book, of course, is that, uh, as I said earlier, I wrote this memoir in 20, well, published it in 2015, growing out of this Guardian series that I wrote in 2010 to 2012. And this book was written, I did a PhD and focused on this book, really because I just didn't want to be part of that sort of discourse anymore. I found it very frustrating. I found it repetitive. I found it, you know, intellectually and creatively um quite unfulfilling i mean with the exception of the the guardian series and the book uh which you know i think politically and sort of intellectually aesthetically i was able to do something close to what i wanted with those projects but the sort of things that happened around it sort of twitter the kind of invites i got to talk on radio and tv pretty much all of which i turned down um and and some of the other journalistic commissions i got off the back of that work um I I just found were not really what I wanted to be doing. And so, you know, luckily, because I managed to get funding to do this as a PhD, I was able to write a book that was much more kind of proactive rather than reactive and sort of saying, well, look, actually, these are the terms on which I want to discuss trans lives. And, you know, fortunately enough, I've managed to get myself into a position where I can do that. And so, yeah, this book, you know, there are stories about... Yeah, there are stories about the media and stories about the law and about politics. There are stories about autonomous organising and wider organising. But there's also stories about love and joy and community. Um, So, so, I mean, you know, I mean, I always wanted to call this collection Variations. That title was in my head from pretty much from the off in about 2003, 2004. and and I think that speaks to the book on a sort of on the level of both form and content. Absolutely. Um, I, as ever, you bring a million ideas uh, and moods uh, together. And I don't want to understate how much this is a book about love, joy, connection and friendship as well, which I think is a very underrated subject, super important subject, particularly in the queer and 
trans community where we we make our own family a lot of the time and many of the stories i guess when i was saying it was less about the sort of the discourse capital t capital d but showing how these groups uh are friends almost you could say syndics come together they're united by passion they're united by debate by the the desire to talk to wrangle things out and that's beautifully presented and that's particularly in short stories a really complex skill of of keeping a story alive that has dialogue that has ideas coming in from different sides and and making those kind of conversations in some way um the beating heart of the story um and what I do want to hear another reason, but I also want to track back to a word that you said, a really important word for this book, which is austerity. This is also a book about work. It's a book about like having to find a job. Um, Ed, uh, the blogger, works for the NHS. Um, in Standards of Care, the main character uh, works uh, for Norwich Union. All of the stories are thinking about, or almost all of them, um, perhaps apart from reconfiguration, we see the characters thinking about how um, to afford, how to keep working, not get pushed out of work because of transphobia, to wear the clothes they want, to live the lives they want, to, to feel some safety, to spend time with their friends. And there's a lot of really great writing about work and what work means, what it's like when you do have it, what it's like when you don't have it. Um, the exhibition is probably a really central story for this because it opens up a really important history of the exhibition of bodies, in this case, um, trans bodies, but this is also like an imperial and racial history of how bodies were put on display. And in some cases, that was the only work that was available in the in the early 20th century. And it's actually, a, you know, really beautiful and tender story it's not a judgmental story but it it really shows the terms of what work is um and i wanted i wanted to hear from you a bit about work and money i'm really really fascinated that you've picked that up because no one else has really Thank I, don't think, you. I don't think i've really realized that i mean no I'm way of... i have out marxist <laughs> well, no I, I just the Marxism is just built in so deeply that I don't even notice it. It's it's you know it's you like the air. Converted um, me with your propaganda, <laughs> comrades. Um, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Let's um, burn down work so that we can all <laughs> live in automated luxury uh, trans anarchism. I I now. wish I wish yeah I mean, yeah. Um, I mean yes, that's that's a really interesting point, and certainly you see in some cases the characters have got themselves into a position where in their work they can pursue this kind of life that they want within the constrained circumstances that are available. So again, there I'm thinking of the first story, uh, A Night at the Theatre, where James stroke Jennifer um, has trained to be a dressmaker. Um, so, you know, quite sort of bourgeois background and uh, learns a trade and moves to London, can set up their own shop so they haven't got a boss uh, and, you know, obviously can make clothes for, for themselves um, and for for like cross-dressing lovers um so there's some ways in which the characters use work as a way of kind of making themselves free within the circumstances and in other cases i mean you mentioned like sandy and standards of care which is the 1970s story and uh, ed in the 2010 story tipping point both of them are on the dole for some of the story and in and out of work in the stories which i think is 
is really interesting and sandy at the start of standards of care is working in a charity shop because there's basically um for the real life experience you know this is this is the story that the most uh most obviously actually follows the gender reassignment process as it was at the time and that taps into the fact that there were like bbc documentaries like a change of sex uh and even um a play for today called even solomon in the late 70s that displayed a level of interest in what this process was there was this like emergence of this process and understanding this was something that people went through uh and 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 interest in it so standards of care like reflects that um so sandy is working in this charity shop and getting all sorts of hassle from just members of the public um basically putting herself in the firing line so there are ways in which work is an obligation it's something that you know is is a real kind of trap it's something forced on you and i think that's probably the most overt in that story um i mean not all of the stories deal directly with work i mean i don't think uh, never going underground does really that's all about kind of student activism um but yeah all of these characters are are people who are trying to pick a path through the world and that's partly through work and sometimes that's creative work so that's arthur parr in a woman of no importance it's um Laura Miller in Dancing with the Devil, which is the 1950s story, which is told as like a chapter from her memoir. And that story really deals with the fact that the media are going to out her as transsexual because she's a passing transsexual woman uh, who's working as a a model and film actress. Um, And that story is really thinking about how few paths are open to transsexual women at that time uh, and how fewer will be open if they are outed, which the press are trying to do. Um... The 1960s story, like the characters are drag queens, but in some cases have day jobs as well. And you see them at their day jobs. Um, so, yeah, work is is very much present throughout this book, um, because that is where we spend most of our lives, whether we're in relationships or not, whether we're doing creative art or not, whatever. Um, you know, life is is work to quite a large extent. It's really <laughs> worth thinking about that. I, I That's what I think why I picked up on it, because I think so little, particularly contemporary British fiction and visual media does it so romanticizes uh a life that sort of happens outside work um dancing with the devil i think is a particularly interesting case because it shows laura walking this incredibly uh fine line very consciously around the choices that she makes in terms of working as a dancer and then working in film and the constant juggling of the risk of exposure which could push her out of the work with is celebrity or the art world the sort of film world to some extent a protection and then you pick up on some of these ideas in what's one of my favorite stories in the collection um which is the twist we share i think a love of avant-garde experimental cinema and the way in which cinema can tell um stories that are full of ambiguity that are full of uh, eroticism that can tell them tangentially and so I just love the way the twist, which is a film script, the head note says that was submitted uh, in 2015, 20 years after the events that it depicts and which fits into the kind of 90s gritty uh, British cinema following The Crying Game, uh, maybe, uh, or Mona Lisa, both of which felt they were somewhere. Maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but behind this. And it, so I want to ask about about the story and about the importance of visual culture for you and then lead into you know getting your top 10 of or top five of what what you read or watch while you're working on this book or, or places you think people might go next 
podcast, uh, you mentioned the the indie trans writers of the of the 1990s, thinking about people, I think, like Leslie Feinberg. But I want to talk about the twist and then and then get into some recommendations. Yeah, let's let's talk about the twist. It's one of my very favourite stories in the book. I think it feels like the most experimental story of all of them. I mean, you know, like I said, all of these stories use different forms, but I think the film script really stands out amongst the rest of the the book. A lot of the rest of the book is either kind of um, memoir writing or blogging, it's um, or letters. Um, or newspaper articles, journal articles. So it is kind of more straightforward prose. And so the film script does really stand out in that way. And yeah, as you say, it's a response to this wave of, of 1990s films dealing with trans subjects, but pretty much always not written or directed or starring openly trans or non-binary people. Um, so it's a kind of, it's a story about appropriation and the the premise of the the script is that uh in the 90s a sort of quite auteurish but also slightly kind of hack um british male filmmaker uh, wants to make a film based on a memoir by a trans woman called juliana Starr, who claims to have slept with a lot of like politicians and so forth and then like died of an aids related illness uh, the memoir's really obscure he's basically found it in a bargain bucket somewhere he kind of knows the memoir might not all be true but he doesn't really care uh, but it's important to present it as a true story that's really giving a lot of um sort of vim to his um his project and then you know he has a sort of quite famous couple uh male female couple playing key roles in the um in the in the film including a cis woman playing the trans woman and um you know uh, basically juliana the trans woman who's died her former lover another trans woman called zelda gets wind this film is happening and basically wants to be part of the production process and so zelda writes this script 20 years later documenting what happened when she kind of complicated the production of, of this film so it's a kind of film film play a screenplay about a failed film production so there's quite a lot of like metatextuality going on there obviously the name the twist refers to the marketing of the crying game um and people saying don't spoil the twist which of course now in the age of the internet you know just is not possible really um but 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 back then uh, it was was just about tenable that you might be able to stop the twist of um, of a central character's gender becoming public domain. Sorry, I should have issued a spoiler warning if you haven't seen it. Um, <laughs> I I once we, we just, can sort of blur that bit out in the final. Just as a little aside, I went to um, my favourite cinema close up a few years ago, and Ian Sinclair was uh, was introducing Robert Bresson's O Hazard Balthazar. And um, he gave a pretty big spoiler in that film in his introduction. There was this widespread kind of like groaning and complaining around me. And I was just like, look, guys, there's a Bresson film. The donkey wasn't going to become president. Um, <laughs> <laughs> although I would watch that. Um, anyway. Uh, to stick Didn't we the... already just watch that for four years? Yeah, it was shortly shortly before that happened, I think. So it's a premonition okay. there. But um, anyway, okay. so so that's kind of the plot behind the twist and the storyline of the twist. It kind of, I mean, it's it's probably the biggest high wire act in terms of the plotting of this book because the whole point is that there is ludicrous numbers of twists in the story that you know 
a sort of may stretch the reader's sort of suspension of disbelief or possibly even their patience. Um, and it's obviously kind of comic. It's quite farcical. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I try to have humor running through all of these stories, really, even the ones that are very sad, uh, which lots of them are. Um but, you know, there, there's a humour to that kind of farcical kind of borderline overplotting. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I think it does bring a lot to the collection. I mean, incidentally, it was it was the second one I wrote. The first one I wrote was, uh, was A Night at the Theatre. This was the second one I wrote, and it was the only one where I had the idea um, before I sat down and kind of conceived the collection I mean a little note on how I structured the collection as a whole which was obviously I had this historical narrative which I will come back to when I talk about the books that were with me through this writing um but you know I had a sort of historical narrative that went through industrialization um public cross-dressing law making to suppress it medicalization and sexology as a way of um countering that legal suppression uh, and then the emergence of sort of trans identities and politics and media representation from there um so that was my kind of underlying narrative and then i was sort of looking at picking individual moments in british trans history to tell that story so had the two stories in the 1890s that basically either side of the um labashare amendment that made gross indecency illegal in 1885 and the effects of of that law change on proto-trans people and then there's a story set in the 1920s reconfiguration which is about sexology and uh features the sexologist Havelock Ellis trying to uh come up with a theory uh about why people have these sort of gender variant identifications and then finding that actually life is more complicated than, than his <laughs> theories uh and then the 1930s story the exhibition that you've already talked about But then after that, from the 1950s onwards, there's just a story for every decade. Um, And so, you know, the 1950s story deals with media intrusion, the 60s story dealing with um, the drag culture that's allowed to flourish after the decriminalisation of homosexuality in 67. The 1970s story is sort of dealing with, like, the emergence of transsexual people as a kind of category and of media representation of them, but also of, you know, things like glam and punk and how they allowed some space for people to play with gender in a sort of slightly more under-the-radar way. The 80s story is dealing with the impact of the HIV and AIDS crisis of Section 28 of um, disagreements um, within this LGBT community. And so the 90s story, you know, deals with with these films uh, but i did actually have this idea for a, a a film script about you know what happens when you get a cis person to play a trans character and then how trans people might complicate that that was an idea i used to write about a lot in my journalism about 10 years ago or you know mm. this idea of who plays trans characters on screen and what it means for them to be played by trans actors uh, and that was sort of creative engagement with that idea as well. So the twist was the only one that really existed uh, before I sort of mapped out variations as a whole. And I think that's one reason why it was the second story that I um, that I took on. Which is incredible for such a, a formally sophisticated and multi-layered story, multi-layered in terms of archaeological layers of history the voices telling the story through the form of the of the screenplay and I think that makes it I think even more fascinating for me and I think for our listeners to know which books and texts were sitting alongside you as you leapt into 
reinventing the form both of the short story and of the short story collection um it because it is a real that you describe the historical arc of it so calmly and with um such confidence and insight but it's a real it is a real high wire act and it comes off so beautifully so what's your secret who who are you who are your guys i mean there's so many influences on this book it's really hard to to pick any out i mean it's actually in a way it's kind of easier to pick out a whole sort of historical and contemporary literary cultures um yeah so we've we could be here a while um but obviously (laughs) a big influence is you know i alluded to them earlier these this wave of trans and non-binary writers who emerge almost but not entirely exclusively from north america in the 90s so i'm thinking of someone like kate bornstein whose gender outlaw looked at finding what she called a transgendered writing style and brought in a real kind of hybrid text you know it brought in some kind of theory some memoir lots of transcripts of things like aol chat rooms and emails as well as a couple of plays that bornstein wrote so it's a really interesting approach to genre there and i could also talk about leslie feinberg we've also mentioned so feinberg published a a book called Stonebridge Blues, which was subtitled A Novel, which was, and the subtitle, of course, was to highlight the fact that it sort of simultaneously was and wasn't a novel. It was very mm-hmm. autobiographical, but, you know, had, you know, I mean, a lot of authors obviously writing fiction draw heavily from their own lives, but Feinberg sort of played with this autobiographical pact in such a way as to say, look, this is fictionalised a bit, but barely at all. Um, and so this sort of autofiction has always really, really interested me. And indeed, there's a lot of contemporary authors, Chris Krause, Sheila Hetty, Jean-Philippe Toussaint, Lars Ayer, uh, who are doing something quite interesting with having central characters that share at least their first name and a lot of their own autobiographical details. And it becomes a bit of a game for the reader to work out how autobiographical the text is. So all of those things are quite interesting to me. Um, Susan Stryker, of course, comes out of that... Um, 90s trans culture as well and so Stryker wrote this this book transgender history which is quite brief and fairly u.s centric although not entirely um mm. history which like i said gives you the arc of sort of industrialization lawmaking sexology uh identity categories political organization around them cultural expression uh, which is really the arc that comes out in the book um so that's very important um but i'd like to also just talk a bit about literature because like i said there wasn't really any trans or non-binary literature that i had when i was conceiving this project back in the mid-2000s and there wasn't that much more 10 years later when i really had a serious go at writing it um so a lot of kind of like queer writers were a big inspiration to me um a couple of south american ones um playwright called copy who wrote this wonderful play about ava peron in which copy stipulated that ava peron had to be played by a drag queen um and you know cause no end of offense i mean you know like right wingers in argentina you know sort of or i think even argentinian right wingers in france you know kicked up a real stink around the play they really hated it um but copy wrote these again very formally experimental and quite weird uh plays with this really sort of queer and maybe surreptitiously trans sort of identities going on in them uh i mean similar thing for like jean Genet, our lady of the flowers has these sort of like cross-dressing characters um probably the biggest influence on that score though was um the cuban 
uh, sort of quite avant-garde writer Severo Sardoy, who wrote a novel called Cobra, which is all about this transvestite trying to find this Valley of the Dolls. Um, and it's a really relentlessly experimental piece of writing. I think Roland Barthes wrote The Pleasure of the Text about it. Um, and it's quite sort of aggressive with its readers quite early on. There's a footnote saying, I can't remember exactly what it says, but it basically says, this is what I'm doing with this text. And if you don't understand that, you might as well give up now. Um, and, you know, Sardoy sort of talks to the, the audience <laughs> in a really uh, quite aggressive way, uh, which I've, I've also always kind of admired. And I did kind of rip off a bit in my Guardian series. But... Um, yeah, those, those were sort of big influences. I mean, I think probably the other big set of influences here was a range of like British and French writers writing uh, in the wake of the, um, you know, the sort of post-war period, so the 50s through to the 70s. And these were often kind of responding to the high period of modernism in the sort of early 20th century and maybe trying to find new directions for it. Um, so people in Britain like B.S. Johnson, Anne Quinn and Rainer Happenstall. And then in France, I would say um, Alain Robbrier, Natalie Sarraut, Marguerite Dirac, Claude Simon, Robert Pinget, um, possibly Georges Perec at the, the end of that, um, who were doing quite interesting things with first person subjectivity. Also, um, in some cases, like Anne Quinn and Rob Grier in particular, uh, brought very overt sex and sexuality into the writing. Uh, in Anne Quinn's case, quite a kind of queer sense, sensuality to it. Um, but, you know, we're all sort of quite consciously writing from the margins, I think, in terms of form, if not subject position, although in some cases, particularly Quinn, they definitely were doing that as well. Um but but sort of, you know, awaken for me this passion for, for literary experimentation. I mean, that's not to say that Variations is like a stridently experimental text. I don't think it's difficult on a textual level. Um, but, you know, there's a sort of experimentation in its sort of use of different forms and different styles. And, you know, like I said, in the case of the twist, a real sort of sense of like well this might not come off actually <laughs> um so you know experimentation in its its truest sense like that but yeah so so a very broad uh range of um of influences on the work i think but yeah again reflects the fact that i've spent sort of you know nearly two decades working on it and reading and all of that reading feeding into it on some level or another even if that's not immediately obvious in the sort of form or the content of the book Wow. Well, we definitely have to get you in as a guest bookseller at, at, at Burley Fisher at some point, because that was really um, an encyclopedic experience. I just I would love to browse the shelves um, that you're setting up there. Um, I think this is a great point to to have another reading to hear exactly what you're saying, that the it's an incredible variations, incredibly readable book. Each story is so absorbing um each character speaks so distinctively that the experimentation that's happening at the level of form of the way that the research is being brought into these non-fictional forms that are telling fictional stories often touching um very real historical figures uh and events uh is so um lightly and confidently done that you can read ahead in each story while feeling um I don't know, I almost want to say like a sort of suspension bridge or something, so this really intricate architecture, a Gaudi cathedral or something, let's go with that. Um, but, but that I just, you know, love walking around in. So I'd love to hear a bit more before we say goodbye and thank you, just to say that um, the game did end 2-1 to Ukraine, poor North Macedonia. 
uh, are going home. Um, so I really appreciate that you've taken time out from your most important schedule at the moment to talk to us. Uh, well, and... yeah. I mean, I, I, I spent a summer living in Ukraine three years ago. So I do I do sort of follow uh, Ukraine. Indeed, went to a few matches in Ukraine. Like I went to the Super Cup final between Dinamo Kiev and Shakhtar Donetsk, which is one of the more terrifying things I've done in my life, I have to admit. Um <laughs> So, so yeah, um, I... Hmm. You didn't miss any goals from Ukraine in the second half, but no, that... Macedonia did get on the scoreboard, so... Oh, bless them. Um... Bless them! <laughs> okay, well, let's, yeah, I mean, I, I was sort of wanting a reading from quite late in the book, I think, to give a sort of yeah. contrast with the earlier historical stuff, but a reading from the twist and crossing doesn't really work that well because they're, um, they're sort of these multi-vocal... Um, mm-hmm. stories so I think I'm going to go for one from Never Going Underground which is set in 1988 um, and this is quite early in the story it's been written by a um, a transsexual woman although at this point in the story that she's describing she doesn't know she's transsexual yet and she's living living as a man and just actually really just sort of starting to cross dress but trying to pick a way through Manchester's gay scene which of course is something that brought them as a university student from Reading to Manchester so I'll um I'll join the story um where they're on Canal Street or the you know the gay village in Manchester and just poking their toe in so I'll come in there so the narrator says they were going to Napoleon's but I decided to stick with the Rembrandt I'd never been anywhere like this before I stood outside, trying to peer at the punters to figure out what they might be like, but you couldn't see through the windows. I stepped inside and cast my eye around. It was like the pubs in Reading, except with posters for drag queens instead of covers bands, pop instead of rock on the jukebox, staff who didn't stare at you like you'd come over at Christmas and pissed on their kids. They were playing Dead or Alive, You Spin Me Round, and as I went to the bar, these older men gave me the eye. I can't lie, it was intimidating, but in a way, they made me feel sexy, a little more than ever before, even though I didn't fancy them. There was only one gang that could have been students, 20 years younger than everyone else. It was called the Gay and Lesbian Society, but something was missing. Is this just for guys? I asked. The girls split, I was told. They prefer the dyke bars. And they're more into politics. Maybe I should join them, I joked. Well, half joked. I wouldn't try that, said I wouldn't try that, duck. They're strictly women only. Why? I asked. Some of them hate men, a few of them really have it in for trannies. Seriously? What's the problem? I don't know, I was told. Apparently the most male thing you can do is cut your dick off. Simon, said someone. That's not what happens, and even if it was, that's bloody insensitive. Oh, sorry, Joni, replied Simon. I just can't think of anything worse. Don't do it, then. He turned to me. Sorry about that. One Picardi breezer and he's a bloody mare. Just ignore him, like we do. Simon eyeballed him, and he smiled back. I'm Johnny. No airs and graces. No sense that he was acting out some preconception of what gay men went to be like. Just a smart, funny, friendly lad and dreamy with his blonde hair and blue eyes. When everyone else was dancing, we got talking, about how his parents never gave up on him coming home with a lass, 
and how he split with his first long-term boyfriend who'd voted Tory. One of those self-hating queers, Johnny said. And about how he'd been with his little sister in the only gay pub in, in, the only gay pub in Rochdale when it got firebombed. Johnny gave me a leaflet. It had little bombs around the edges. His idea, he said, after Capital Gay's office got burned down and the Conservative MP for Lancaster proclaimed that it was right that there should be an intolerance of evil. It said stop the clause in foreboding letters above fight for gay and lesbian rights. It's not just that the Tories want us to die, said Johnny. They want us never to live at all. What do you mean, I asked. They're trying to pass a law making it illegal to talk about being gay in schools. Or even have books about it in libraries. You're not going to let them, are you? Thatcher's plummy, fingernails on blackboard voice rang in my ears. Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. I pictured my parents, and maybe Johnny's, nodding along. Of course I'm not going to fucking let them. I cannot believe we got your Thatcher. <laughs> Banging at the end there. Who'd have, who'd have Banging at it? the end. Yeah. Uh, all that remains for me to say is, well, bloody hell, thank you. Of course we're not going to fucking let them. Um, Variations by Juliet Jakes is a book about living. It's a book about being found in history carrying on, keeping going, celebrating, having a brilliant time. Uh, and it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you, Julia. Uh, I love this book. Can't wait for the next book. And thank you so much. Thank you. From Julia. Okay, thank you so much to Juliet for being so generous with your time and your thoughts. And thank you to you, so for asking such wonderful questions. That was great. I really enjoyed myself. Uh oh, yeah, my, my pleasure. Um, we're going to be a bit um, quiet for the uh, couple of weeks now. I'm sure you're mm -hmm. all very relieved. We're going to be working mm -hmm. behind the scenes. We have got a, an author podcast uh, planned for our July subscription title, which is going to be really special. But we also have two more events coming up, one online, which will be on the 28th uh, of July with the brilliant Sam Walton talking about her book, Everybody Needs Beauty. She'll be in conversation with Alice Tarbuck talking about nature cures and magic. And um, it's going to be amazing. And then the following night, we actually are back in store free event book because it's very limited tickets talking to luke cooper about his book authoritarian contagion the global threat to democracy and ash sarkar and kojo koram will be in conversation with luke hosted by zoe williams so you cannot say we are not coming back in very strong yeah. um and at both of those events just delving into like non-fiction of like the highest importance and relevance right now. Awesome. Well, plenty more to look forward to. So much coming up. Can't wait to yeah. see you guys in the shop. In the um, shop. <laughs> and on that note, I will sign off. Goodbye for me. And uh, goodbye for me and uh, from Maggie Thatcher, because she's dead. <laughs> Yeah, R.I.P. Wait, no, not R.I.P. <laughs> um, <laughs> peace! <laughs>